Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News, your source for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Inside Israel News is back. I have been under the weather for many days, unfortunately, uh, just getting back from the flu and all of the, the wonderful bugs we have flying around this time of the year. Uh, COVID isn't the only uh, illness out there, but uh, if I sound a bit tired or uh, what have you, that, that would be why. But I'm desperate to get an episode out. So much has happened. Uh, terrorism in the United States, coalition crisis in Israel, uh, issues with Bibi Netanyahu, and uh, want to say something about the French elections, uh, but I may have to put that off to another episode here because there's just so much to talk about uh, right here uh, on on what's going on in the U.S. and Israel. So I'll uh, jump right into <clears throat> to all of that. Terrorism in the United States. A British citizen, Malik Faisal Akram, took uh, hostages, three hostages at a... a Texas synagogue in attempt to release uh, what they called the, you know, Texas uh, female Al-Qaeda, who is uh, uh, incarcerated in Fort Worth, and uh, <clears throat> demanded her release in exchange for the hostages. Now, in these kinds of terrorist uh, incidents where uh, hostages are taken, uh, they, they don't intend to release the hostages. They intend to kill them. Uh, it's just a waiting game, uh, how long it takes to, to get to the point where they kill it. Because there's no reasonable expectation that we would ever release uh, a, you know, a terrorist, a, a horrible terrorist from prison to get the hostages, right? We don't negotiate with terrorists. So they know that. And so it's, a, it's an attempt to get attention and commit murder. Thankfully, in the evening, the terrorist was neutralized and the hostages were released free and uh, are safe and, and well after 10 hours uh, as hostages. Um, the, uh, the terrorist, of Pakistani descent, but a British national, uh, it's been a bit of an embarrassment to Britain on this one uh, because obviously uh, people, you know, British citizens are have an easier time traveling to the U.S. Uh, and well, this, is, this is how we get terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. Uh, the rabbi of uh, the congregation, now uh, free after 10 hours as a hostage, says he is grateful to be alive. Apparently, the FBI was very um, impressed with how calm he remained uh, during the 10 hours of, uh, the, of the hostage crisis. So an amazing uh, story of courage on his part. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I want to say it's unfortunate his courage had to be tested in such a way, but uh, he, did a, he did a good job there. President Biden has said that this is an act of terror and says we will stand against anti-Semitism. Of course, he repealed efforts to combat anti-Semitism on university campuses. So I don't know how, you know, how strong that statement is. Rings a little bit hollow. Uh, Also, I mean, it's great to know that terrorists are not just Trump supporters and parents concerned about critical race theory, because those are two groups that have been designated domestic terrorists of late by uh, the FBI. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's good to know that, that they do understand, however, that this was an act of terrorism and uh, that the president was able to make a coherent statement uh, about that. So, I mean, here we, here we go. You know, we have attacks in the U.S. on Jews going on. Uh, <clears throat> we have anti-Semitism in our universities. 
Uh, friends, it is not a great time to be a Jew in the United States. Uh, <clears throat> these are, you know, we, we still have the greatest number of uh, hate crimes committed against Jewish people in America. This has got to stop. We, we have to stop the anti-Semitism and, uh, you know, allowing or, or uh, reducing restrictions that were designed to prevent anti-Semitism on college campuses doesn't help. And uh, just, you know, hollow words. Th- these aren't going to help either. It's going to take a little bit more than that. And one thing that we could do is, you know, try to prevent terrorists from entering the United States, which I believe was a key point of Trump's, President Trump's 2016 campaign that he tried to enact with the travel ban. So this, these are dangerous times. And this synagogue uh, hostage incident is just uh, a terrible example of the fear that we have to live with. Uh, I know that on several occasions there were issues even in um, the San Francisco Bay Area where uh, when I attended my synagogue there, we had a couple times we had police across, you know, a police cruiser and officer stationed across the street uh, just to be sure that there wasn't any trouble. You know, this is, uh, there are a number of synagogues that are hiring private security for Shabbat services and and holiday services. This is not okay, right? We should be able to pray in peace and security. Uh, And all people should be able to pray in peace and security in the United States. Uh, This is the land of religious freedom and tolerance after all. But uh, not so much. Back to Israel in terms of Israeli news stories. Uh, Benny Gantz, who is defense minister, met with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas at, uh, the, with the PM's blessing, with Bennett's blessing. Uh, they met at Gantz's home and they discussed security and economic matters, but not the, the political issues. Uh, not, this wasn't peace talks. It was just a, a meeting about security issues mostly. <clears throat> uh, Bennett refuses to meet Abbas in person. <clears throat> he has personal objections to meeting uh, Mahmoud Abbas. And with good reason. Mahmoud Abbas is a terror leader. Uh, but the, the fact is that they, Israel does coordinate security matters with the Palestinian Authority to a certain degree. So that was part of what that meeting was about. <clears throat> Prime Minister Bennett has approved a fourth vaccine for the elderly and healthcare workers. Uh, makes sense to protect the most uh, vulnerable populations. Uh, Bennett will also likely ease travel restrictions next week. Now that we have very firm scientific evidence that the Omicron variant, Omicron variant, uh, is more contagious but less deadly than previous versions of the virus. You know, somebody's been saying that viruses evolve to become less deadly. I mean, lots of, you know, doctors and healthcare professionals, but somebody that you might listen to on podcasts has been mentioning this. Anyway, um, so we've seen that this Omicron variant thing is... Uh, boiling over. Uh, Bennett did adjust uh, testing requirements and, and that kind of thing because there, um, we, we know that there's a spike of cases every time a whole bunch of people go to get tested, right? And so the, the, the testing, the inconsistency of testing creates a, um, a kind of uh, bias, if you will, in the statistics, a statistical bias where there appear to be waves of infection as people go and get tested in greater numbers uh, when we're probably looking at a more consistent, uh, you know, population, percentage of the population that is infected at any given time and is probably not rising that quickly. Uh, But again, you know, we only know about this because of testing and therefore, you know, Something like Immanuel Kant, he pointed out that when it comes to scientific observation, we only have five senses. 
right? So, I mean, all, all scientific observation has to be made through our five senses. Uh, whether we have to invent a microscope to be able to see things that are, that are too small for our eyes to perceive or a telescope to see things that are too far for our eyes to see, the fact is, at the end of the day, we have to use our senses to uh, see these things. Well, it's the same thing here. We have this bias of we don't know who's infected until they're tested. When people go get tested in waves, then it looks like we have this massive spread. Um, I don't know why this is a surprise to anyone because I remember uh, back in the 80s, in the, in the early 80s, when they figured out what HIV was <clears throat> and there started being testing available, a whole bunch of people got tested and it just appeared to be growing exponentially, especially in, in the homosexual community. Just the AIDS was everywhere. And they didn't realize after a little while that it had been in that population for some time and growing among those who were infected at a consistent rate. But because the tests had only just become available, it started looking like it was just going everywhere. Like people were just becoming infected left and right. The fact is we were finding out who's infected with a disease we had not known of, uh, previously known about. So this shouldn't be too much of a surprise. We, we should know and understand at this point that this uh, phenomenon happens. All right. Um, so... Again, going with uh, Israeli domestic news, a Haredi author, Haredi are the ultra-Orthodox in Israel, the guys in the black hats and black coats, um, a prominent Haredi author named Haim Valder uh, has been accused of being a serial sexual abuser. One of his alleged victims recently committed suicide uh, as a result of it because uh, there's this broad silence from rabbinical leadership and there's been a lot of blowback. Uh, the, The victim's who have come forward have received uh, a lot of hate and have been accused of lying and all these kinds of things. Uh, I will tell you, having worked in uh, child welfare and having interviewed children, uh, children don't make these stories up. Okay, they, they're almost always true. It happens occasionally that there's a false story, but they're pretty obvious. Okay, but, but these, these stories, I mean, children don't just go around making up these stories. Okay, uh, so this... Uh, this little girl who committed suicide, she for Horowitz, uh, she, she claimed that uh, he had been inappropriate with her. A number of other children came forward saying that he had been inappropriate with them. Uh, again, silence from the rabbinical leadership and a lot of blowback against them. And uh, that led uh, Shifra Horowitz to commit suicide. Well, I want to, to say very clearly, I believe Shifra Horowitz and uh, this man needs to be charged. He needs to be a disgrace. Uh, the Haredi community needs to work harder to prevent this. There's been a, <clears throat> a number of incidents where prominent rabbis and authors and what have you in that community have been accused of inappropriate conduct. And all too often, they all close ranks to protect those people. You know, this is, this is not appropriate. If people are committing acts that are criminal under Jewish law and civil law, right, then they should be uh, punished and they should definitely not be allowed access to children. Uh, this guy belongs in jail, <clears throat> right? So uh, this, is, this is another complaint about the Haredi community. They are, they are too quick to defend their own even when they're wrong and uh, close ranks and that kind of thing. And in this case, they've driven a young girl to kill herself. And that's highly inappropriate <clears throat> and, and just, it's not okay. Something needs to be done about this. 
to provide a, a contrast also, I've talked about my complaints about the Haredi community in previous episodes and uh, some of the problems with that community. But I've also talked about the biases against them in the uh, Israeli society at large. And uh, to contrast that sort of negative story about the Haredi, I just want to make the point that there's an art exhibit in Ramad Gan that has re- received some controversy. Uh, <clears throat> it's a picture that uh, has a picture of Jerusalem on one side and it says Jerusalem of gold, which is a, a, a famous song. The uh, Ofrahaza version is available on YouTube if you're interested in listening to it. Um, beautiful song. And then the other side of the, the picture is a picture of a Haredi man and it says Jerusalem of shit. Right? So this is distinctly a bigoted picture or painting or art exhibit against the Haredi. And it, it demonstrates that they get a lot of um, negativity. There's, there's also a community in Israel now that's upset because a yeshiva has moved into their town and they're afraid that <clears throat> ultra-Orthodox people are going to start buying houses there. And that means that property values will decline and the whole community will become Haredi. And uh, all of the secular people will have to move out. This has happened in a number of occasions where the Haredi just take over communities near Jerusalem. And, uh, <clears throat> and they're not happy about it. So it, it, gives you, it gives you a sense of some of the difficulties that are going on there. There are two sides to that story. But at the same time, uh, you know, that doesn't excuse the Haredi behavior when it comes to sexual abusers. But at the same time, it shows you that Israeli society is going to have to alter those kinds of negative opinions. In the art community, in the far left, you get these very negative opinions about the Haredi, which are equally inappropriate. So I'm calling out both sides here. The Haredi need to clean up their act and uh, secular Israelis, especially, you know, in the art community, what have you, really, really need to tone down the hate. (laughs) Okay? So, uh, you know, peace, love, and kumbaya here. All right, now to the opposite of that. Hamas fired rockets into the sea uh, right off the coast of uh, Yafo or Jaffa uh, and other coastal communities. And uh, Hamas claims that they were launched accidentally, of course. Now, when this kind of thing happens, you, you, you immediately wonder, what's the ploy here? What are they trying to accomplish? Because they didn't fire them at any Israeli communities, but they knew that there would be some kind of Israeli response, right? Well, Israel responded by sending helicopters to make strikes on Hamas targets. And Hamas fired shoulder-launched anti-air missiles at these helicopters, which missed. They were deflected. So you get to see, I've talked a lot about how these guys are like, uh, it's like having somebody stand behind you and flick your ear and you tell them to stop and then they flick it again and you tell them to stop again and they flick it a third time and you you shove them and then they fall down on the floor and cry and whine and scream and he's bullying me this is how we this is the kind of strategy that Hamas has employed so here they fired a bunch of rockets into the ocean knowing that Israeli would Israel would respond but not respond too heavily right as the helicopters come in they then fire shoulder mounted Uh, anti-air missiles in the hopes that they could down one of these helicopters and then achieve a victory that they can go run around. We shot down an Israeli helicopter. Look at us. We're such, we're so bad. You know, we're, we, we were able to defeat the Israelis. Uh, These are the constant games we have to play with these people, but because they missed no victory for Hamas. Right. Um, You know, terrorism games. It's, it's really not fun. (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, you know, the, but, but this is 
like I said, I mean, this is the point of, of how they play this game. Uh, for a while, the and this is kind of hilarious. You can actually look this up on on uh, the internet and, and find pictures of this. The uh, the Palestinians are going around claiming that they had captured an Israeli tank, a Merkava, and were driving it around the uh, the Gaza Strip, uh, celebrating the capture of this Israeli tank. But if you see pictures of it, this this tank has tires under the tank. It's a they took a pickup truck and built a wooden tank mock-up, uh, you know, facade over this pickup truck and we're driving it around purporting to be an Israeli tank. I mean, you know, some of the games these guys play are just ridiculous. Um, what can I say? <laughs> uh, but this is, this is another attempt to, uh, to cause consternation. Israeli officials under the change block are now making reforms to the kashrut system in Israel, which is a step in the right direction, in my opinion. I'll give you my opinion when it when it counts. Um, Kashrut has become something of a racket in Israel with various degrees of Kashrut, you know, glot kosher or mahadran kosher, you know, these things that you know, ever ever more restrictive uh, Kashrut standards that uh, require only certain rabbis to certify and only certain rabbinical groups to certify. Uh, well, <clears throat> the government is changing that to create a greater freedom of choice in certifying council. So now instead of being stuck with your local regional council, uh, restaurants and businesses can seek certification from various councils around the country. And this gives them options. Uh, and the process will be overseen by the chief rabbinate instead of um, private ultra-Orthodox groups. So this is going to be a little bit different. It, this will uh, free up the kashrut system a little bit and allow restaurants to be certified as kashrut uh, without having to, you know, pay off the local Orthodox mob bosses, basically, uh, in order to, you know, who hold them hostage. And I, I will tell you the story. Uh, there was a hot dog stand that I like to frequent in Tel Aviv uh, that was only about a kilometer's walk from where I was staying in Ramadan. And it was a really nice little restaurant. Uh, and uh, they had a kosher certification. And uh, they happened to be open the second day of uh, Pesach. So we went down there to, to eat and they had uh, unleavened buns for the uh, hot dogs. So, of course, if it's unleavened bread, then it's OK to eat. Well, uh, the guy, the owner of the restaurant was telling me that earlier in the day, the uh, couple of uh, rabbis from the uh, certifying council that he's forced to go to in Tel Aviv, in that region of Tel Aviv, had come down and given him a shakedown. Uh, they were, they were, you know, demanded to see all of the ingredients and all of his, uh, and all of his uh, condiments. And they were looking at his, you know, all of his uh, buns and they were, you know, they just, you know, just looking for everything. And uh, he said there was a strong implication that if he were to give them a little bit of money, they might go away. <clears throat> right. Uh, but of course, he's a restaurant owner. He doesn't want to pay protection money to these guys, basically. And this is like a, like a racket, you know. Uh, so he put up with their BS and finally they went away. Right. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that's inappropriate. He should be able to go to a certifying council that is focused on offering legitimate certification that the restaurant is kosher per Jewish law, uh, without the, the shakedown and the, the constant harassment by rabbinical authorities. <clears throat> so we're starting to see this reform in Israel because the ultra-Orthodox parties have had uh, a say in government so long in Israel. There's a lot of instances like this where they've created 
uh, I mean, this is this is beyond special privileges that I've referred to in the past, like not you know exemption from military service and things like that. Uh, this is this is you know just a racket. I mean, this is distinctly uh, creating kind of a mafia atmosphere uh, for uh, Kashrut certification. So that's not a, a good thing. <clears throat> Now, Israel's been having a bit of a housing crisis for a number of years, and I'm, I'm going to talk about one aspect of it here. Uh, back in uh, the aughts, uh, people began to notice that Israeli housing prices were rising uh, just out of control. It was getting ridiculous. And, uh, it, you know, housing started to get to be 200,000 shekels for a, a condo, you know, anywhere near the city. And then all of a sudden it's 500,000 shekels and this is, you know, so 200,000 shekels is about fifty, sixty thousand dollars 60000 All right, this is, you know, then it, all of a sudden it's going to be a million shekels, about a quarter of a million dollars. It, these houses, especially in Tel Aviv, housing prices were just skyrocketing. And it was going very quickly. Well, obviously, salaries and incomes in Israel are not rising so quickly as these housing prices. But there are limited places to live. And if you want to live someplace nice, you know, uh, you, you're going to have to pay for it, right? Well, uh, to respond to this, Bibi Netanyahu reduced a lot of the red tape in building new housing uh, units for residential facilities. Uh, but now the government is working on reducing red tape bureaucracy and trying to streamline the process for commercial building as well, which is a, a step in the right direction. Because the fact is, you know, as you build new houses, people are going to want more grocery stores and restaurants, uh, there's going to be a need for more commercial spaces as well, right? So they're trying to to you know, make it easier to build commercial space uh, buildings as well. So that that's a, another interesting step in the Israeli economy. Uh, Israel was founded by socialists um, who believe strongly in socialism, and like all socialist countries, by the the 70s, you know, just a few you know decades in, hyperinflation, low productivity, people almost starving to death. <clears throat> it you know, Venezuela. <laughs> it happens everywhere, every time it's tried. Funny thing. Uh, but uh, Israel adapted to become a free market economy thereafter and now is prospering. It's the fastest growing economy in the developed world. So, <clears throat> you know, you can, you can see as they slowly kind of peel back that socialist culture and open the economy to greater and greater innovation and free market uh, opportunity, it just, it creates better and better results for Israel. Uh, Israel has ended its ban on homosexual surrogacy. Uh, for some reason, there was a ban that prevented uh, homosexual couples from seeking a uh, surrogate partner, you know, basically creating a child through a surrogate for the couple. And um, this is interesting because Israel has had a long debate about um, artificial insemination and there's just been a lot of um, questions about uh, having children any way but the, quote, natural way, <laughs> let's just say. Uh, and this is just one more example of greater leniency there. Um, so that, you know, that's part of Israel being a, a progressive and forward-looking country uh, in that regard. Uh, I can guarantee you not only is there a ban on homosexual surrogacy in most Arab countries, uh, being caught in the act of homosexuality can get you executed in many places. So, uh, and if you're caught in the Gaza Strip, you'll be thrown off a building <clears throat> or dragged behind a pickup truck for several miles or any number of another uh, way, any number of ways of being killed in a, 
in a torturous and, and horrific manner. So this is the difference between Israel, a modern Western democratic country that is free and, and seeks ever greater social freedom, and uh, its opponents who do not. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu has been uh, beset by legal problems. And so th- here's, here's an opportunity to talk about where that all stands. So there were the question, you know, he's been charged in three major corruption cases, uh, claiming that there were quid pro quos with uh, the, the main one with Bezik, uh, a major internet and communications company in Israel. All right. Bezik is the, um, the one where uh, it was claimed that Bibi made a deal with the owners to have more positive news content on the website and that sort of thing. Uh, and to remove negative content. <clears throat> well, Bibi has launched a campaign to cover his legal expenses, and the campaign has raised over 1.6 million shekels in six hours. So Bibi Netanyahu remains a popular figure in that regard. Now, um, in, in terms of his, his legal situation, I talked about these cases being... I don't want to say there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. A lot of the witnesses are obviously biased against BB and this kind of thing. But it was disconcerting from the start, stating my own opinion now, uh, that the state prosecutor was even able to put together such a case, that you create circumstances where it could be plausibly uh, implied that you had actually engaged in such corruption. In any case, uh, not only was it uh, able to be implied that Bibi had engaged in such behavior, they were able to put a criminal case together and take it to trial. Well, uh, Bibi Netanyahu has entered into plea bargain negotiations to uh, plead guilty to some of these charges and exchange for a more lenient sentence. So uh, it seems that uh, Bibi and his attorneys do not feel that he has a strong case for his defense. And that, uh, that says a lot about these cases. And uh, the, the idea that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, and as I said, the, the way that Bibi was clinging to power last year, refusing to let go, did seem to imply that he had some cause to be concerned. So the, the main issue now left in the court uh, plea bargain is the question of whether his actions constitute, quote, moral turpitude. There's a clause in the Israeli law that says that if a politician is convicted of moral turpitude, that they are banned from public service for seven years. Uh, and so they're, they're looking for a way to get around that. Obviously, the state prosecutors want him to accept the moral turpitude, and that means that he can't be prime minister. He'll have to leave the Knesset and will not be able to run for office in the next seven years. <clears throat> uh, but uh, Bibi, obviously, he and his attorneys are fighting this. This is the last sticking point, apparently, according to multiple reports. And uh, it's come down to that. And so they're, they're reaching a compromise where they're thinking of, of leaving that question to the judges and otherwise settling out with a plea bargain. So apparently either Bibi did these things or his attorneys are just not confident that he can win the case. But uh, uh, this doesn't look good for Bibi. Uh, he still has, obviously, uh, fans in Israel. He was able to raise 1.6 million shekels for, uh, in six hours for his defense. But, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have to see how that plays out. Uh, 
he's also engaged in a libel battle with former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, uh, and they're <clears throat> over statements that that uh, they've made about each other and who who was lying and who wasn't and this kind of thing. So uh, I call that the the case of the has-beens, <laughs> going back and forth trying to say who was right and who lied about whom and this kind of thing. Uh, really immaterial at this point, but the courts are going to have to sur- sort of sort out their complaints against one another. Uh, Ehud Olmert uh, was convicted of corruption charges after uh, leaving office and spent some time in prison for it. And it looks like Bibi is taking a plea bargain that will keep him out of prison, most likely, uh, but uh, may bar-, bar him from public office. Now, I want to I wanna just go into a, an analysis of that real quickly. Uh, the, if the state prosecutor felt that their case was strong enough to achieve a real conviction uh, on these charges that, that he thought he could get Bibi to go to prison, they wouldn't be talking about a plea bargain, right? And uh, <clears throat> likewise, if Bibi's attorneys felt that they had a strong case to, go, to achieve acquittal, they wouldn't be talking about plea bargains. So the, the reason that we're talking about a plea bargain here is that both sides see the weakness in their own case. The, the prosecutors aren't confident that they can get Bibi in prison, and the defense isn't confident that they can keep Bibi out of prison. So they're trying to come up with a deal where, you know, some, both sides win something. You know, the, the prosecution will get a, an admission of guilt from Bibi, uh, and the, you know, Bibi will get away without serious punishment. But the moral turpitude question really is the big one, because that that comes down to, does Bibi have the opportunity to serve in public service? Uh, I have said several times in the podcast that I think it's time for him to step aside. He was prime minister for 12 years consecutively, uh, and three years prior to that, uh, it's time for him to retire and move on. And uh, I'll be discussing in the next segment, after the break, uh, how he you know, has missed a political opportunity here by not resigning. <laughs> like he's, he's completely blown a, a perfect political opportunity. So uh, it's time for Bibi to go. And I'd rather it not be by the court declaring him to have committed acts of moral turpitude. Uh, it would be better if he would just quit on his own. Uh, but it may be up to the judges and we'll see what those judges say. So that'll be interesting. When I'm back for the break, Bibi's missed opportunity. The change block has a major coalition crisis brewing right now. Uh, they may be fracturing. And this is creating a situation that could have been advantageous to Likud. Uh, unfortunately, it seems Bibi may have missed an opportunity to, to take adva- full advantage of it, uh, which is what we'll be talking about here. I'm going to talk about the crisis, the coalition crisis in the change block, and then how Likud could have taken more full advantage of it. Uh, Israel is uh, largely a desert today uh, because back in the 16th century, the Ottoman Empire lost a major naval battle against Spain, and having had all their ships sunk, they immediately went and deforested uh, what you know Israel and, and the surrounding countries to build a new fleet, right? Uh, and so there, there's been this effort since Jews came back to the land to start planting trees again. Uh, you can read some of the evidence that uh, Israel was highly forested and heavily forested in the past. Uh, in the book of Yoel, he talks about the, the pines catching fire around Jerusalem and that the, the flames will batter the walls like chariots and arrows, uh, indicating you know God's anger about idolatry and <clears throat> misbehavior and that kind of thing. Uh, so you can, you can read that from the 
from the book of Yoel, the prophet uh, Joel in, in English. And uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff about, you know, the trees and the cedars and this kind of thing. You, you had this forested mountain range in the middle of Israel uh, that uh, encompassed, you know, Jerusalem and Yehuda and, and the Shomron, uh, Samaria and, Judea, and Judea, uh, where, you know, there's forest and trees and animals and, you know, it was a, it was a, a wild country at one time. Well, uh, the deforestation changed the climate of the area, and uh, we've been trying to plant trees. Well, the Jewish National Fund has been planting trees in the Negev in large numbers, and the Bedouins complain because they are a nomadic people who live on the open range down there, and when you plant trees, it displaces them. They can't use that land anymore. They have to move around. And uh, this has created a coalition crisis. They actually rioted in Beersheba, destroying several vehicles and, and committing a little bit of uh, property damage uh, because this, <clears throat> uh, because of the forestation and what they see as a displacement of the Bedouin people. And now uh, Mansour Abbas, the head of the Ra'am party, is saying he will not back the coalition until the issue is resolved. So this is the coalition crisis, right? Uh, Ra'am is the only Arab party voting for the coalition. Their four seats are four of the very narrow 61 seats uh, that the coalition holds in the Knesset. You have to know uh, 61 is a majority of 120, which is the total number of Knesset seats, right? So they have a very bare-bones majority. And uh, his, his votes, Mansour Abbas's votes and the votes of Ra'am are necessary to prop up the coalition. If he doesn't support the coalition, they've got a problem. Uh, and so now we have this conflict of interests here. The Jewish community and Israelis broadly want reforestation of all of Israel. But this is happening in a, in a way that is uh, in conflict with the Bedouins. Now, I want to I say, you know, speaking of the Bedouins, I, I spoke with a young Bedouin man when I was in uh, Israel through a translator, a friend of mine who spoke very good Arabic, and, uh, you know, I was surprised to find out that a lot of the Bedouins vote for Likud, that uh, uh, he said that there was no country for the Bedouins like Israel. In, in Jordan, in Egypt, when there are any problems with the Bedouins, if some Bedouin goes and steals something or whatever, uh, the government just goes out and shoots random Bedouins to punish them, right? You know, they just, they just go kill Bedouins. And in Israel, it's the only country where if a Bedouin steals something, the Israeli officials try to find that particular individual and punish the individual responsible rather than just going out and randomly shooting Bedouins <clears throat> and punishing the Bedouin community. Uh, so it was amazing to see. You know, Israel is something of a refuge for uh, minority groups in the Middle East. Uh, the Druze are very comfortable in Israel. They're not so comfortable in the surrounding countries, in Syria and Lebanon, right? Uh, they're a small religious minority there. Uh, and the Baha'i, or also uh, you can look up the history of the Baha'i. They, they were persecuted horribly in Iran. And now they have a large temple in Haifa and they find uh, refuge in Israel, right? So you, you look around and it's like Israel is this refuge for a number of minority groups, including the Bedouins, who find that Israel is a great place to live. And so I'm going to say, in my opinion, you've heard my analysis of the situation. In my opinion, we should not be planting trees such that it displaces the Bedouins. It's not right for them to go and riot and destroy property, for sure. Uh, <clears throat> that's not the right way to draw attention to the problem. Uh, but at the same time, 
we should be able to plant trees in places that don't displace the Bedouins. Uh, there's plenty of land in Israel, plenty of places to plant trees. Uh, if you ever have a chance to go to Israel, uh, I really recommend going to Modi'in and seeing the monument there to the Maccabees. Modi'in was the Hasmonean capital for quite some time because there were, the fortress in Jerusalem was occupied by the Seleucids throughout most of the war. So Modi'in was their, their capital there, but it's on a, a hill overlooking Israel and uh, it's forested again. And so you can go there and uh, really, you know, as you walk around, you can really kind of relive the Hasmonean experience and think of what it was like to be there in that time uh, just before the Roman Empire took over the, the region. And, uh, you know, think about being the, the Jewish zealous rebels fighting against the, the Seleucids and the, the um, uh, and the and the Ptolemies in that time. I mean, it's just it's amazing. But in any case, uh, we can't displace the Bedouins by doing this. That's not right. And just my opinion. So Mansour Abbas is going to be seeking some kind of compromise. The government's going to have to do something. They're going to have to, you know, figure out something. The Jewish National Fund may have to restrain their reforestation efforts and uh, restrict them to other areas and uh, not harm the Bedouins. Uh, but this is a number of uh, the kinds of issues that I've been talking about where the Arab community in Israel needs representation in the government so that they can be heard, right? So that, that these issues can be addressed. Because a lot of Bedouins vote Likud, they vote for the Israeli right in, in a number of cases, and yet still nobody's listening. Nobody hears their concerns. And they say, hey, look, you know, we want to be able to free range on this land. Can we please have some land to live on, Right. Uh, this kind of thing. Not to say that they're perfect or that their claims are completely legitimate, uh, but that there should, their concerns should be taken seriously. In any case, as you can tell, uh, with such a narrow majority in the Knesset, if Ra'am refuses to support the government, then the government is in deep, deep trouble. If the change block collapses, it could lead to new elections in the late spring, early summer of this year, and that would offer an opportunity for uh, Likud to make a comeback. But it's already a missed opportunity, as I'm about to discuss. Uh, I mentioned before uh, in earlier episodes, especially around the time that the change lock was uh, just coming together, I, I included my analysis that the one thing that holds this change block together, the one thing that makes the change block the change block, is that they all oppose Bibi Netanyahu's serving as prime minister. That's why the change block came together. It's why it stays together. Removing that one issue from them would weaken the coalition. So a short time into the coalition, you know, the the coalition was formed in June, maybe July, August. If Bibi had announced his retirement, that would have meant a Likud leadership race. And so you'd have all this press in the preceding months leading up to a Likud leadership race, probably, you know, October, November sometime, right? Where everyone would be talking about uh, who's going to be the leader of Likud? What does Likud stand for? All this press. There's no such thing as bad press, right? Everything that, uh, all of the attention that would be out there on this, who's it going to be? Is it going to be Israel Katz? Is it going to be Nir Barkat? Who's going to win the leadership uh, of Likud? And this would have created a, a, a great publicity atmosphere for Likud. And then once they have a new leader, that new leader would be in a perfect position right now to start picking at the government. Okay, so Ra'am is not really uh, positive about the government right now over the JNF's uh, reforestation efforts in southern Israel. 
Well, this is a perfect opportunity for a Nir Barkat or an Israel Katz to try to pry, say, Avigdor Lieberman away from the coalition or other right-wing uh, politicians away from the coalition and say, hey, if you guys uh, leave the coalition, then that will definitely bring on new elections, right? Or consider joining an alternate coalition led by Likud, Right. Without Bibi Netanyahu in office, there is every opportunity to draw right wing parties away from the coalition and lead to new elections. But because Bibi is still the, Likuder, the leader of Likud and because uh, that gives strength to the change block government, this is an opportunity that he cannot take advantage of. This is not a, a situation where Bibi can break down the government. Uh, so this is an unfortunate missed opportunity for, for Likud. But it may be, depending on what the judges say on this plea bargain, that in a very short time, Bibi may be disqualified from seeking public office, in which case this will all happen on its own. But it would have been much stronger if Bibi had quit in the late summer and kicked off that leadership race and the publicity for Likud at that time. Because by right by this time, they would be in a different situation. As long as Bibi leads the coup, polls have shown that uh, the political deadlock would continue, even if there were new elections, right? If, if, if elections were held right now, uh, Bibi Netanyahu would not have enough votes to form a coalition, and the change bloc would barely, would continue to be, you know, barely have enough seats to, to hold together, uh, to, to form a coalition. So, again, you know, you look at, at this and... Uh, it's a missed opportunity. I have said before, it is my opinion or assertion or preference that the change block go the full four years and that uh, Naftali Bennett hand off the prime minister's office to Yair Lapid because uh, Israelis have voted four times in two years and they're tired of voting. They want results. They, the government is together. It's doing its thing. It should just go. But in the grand uh, scheme of political chess, this was not a match well played. Bibi could definitely have done more to crack this coalition and break it down, and he hasn't. I mean, you know, he could have, I want to say, led Likud from the shadows, you know, from behind the scenes rather than being the, uh, the leader in the forefront and um, had an opportunity to, to uh, shake the coalition. This is, uh, this is the political game, right? And uh, he's not playing it very well. But... That is the concern that I raised back in the spring when he was clinging to power. Uh, the more he clung to power, the more it began to look like there was legitimacy to the legal claims against him, cases against him, uh, the more uh, it seemed that those like Avigdor Lieberman, who said that he was, uh, Bibi was focused on himself and, and that he was uh, sacrificing the interests of the country for his own interests, the more that seemed legitimate and correct. Right. I mean, he didn't do himself any favors here. So, uh, you know, here we are a little ways down the road from that. Another missed opportunity for uh, political victory. And Bibi seems to be ready to plead guilty to some of these charges. So uh, my my how the winds of time have changed. (laughs) Winds of fortune, let's say. All right. Well, going to close out with a story about uh, DEI employees, diversity, equality, and inclusion employees at some 65 universities. The Heritage Foundation did a study where they searched the Twitter feeds of over 700 employees in the diversity, equality, and inclusion uh, career field at these 65 universities to uh, find, you know, what their what their biases were or thoughts were on Israel, China, and 
uh, the Palestinians. And uh, it should not come as uh, a great surprise that there was some bias found. <laughs> so of these 700, uh, you know, about... Uh, I mean, just it's amazing. Hundreds of tweets about Israel, uh, 96% being critical of the Jewish state, um, 62% of their tweets about China were favorable. You know, they called Israel an apartheid state and a colonial state often, trying to delegitimize Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state, which is interesting considering that they're being favorable toward China, a country that actually puts ethnic minorities, including Muslim ethnic minorities in concentration camps. Wow. Uh, they were uh, very favorable toward, uh, toward China, obviously very negative toward Israel. And uh, it creates a, a very uh, obvious double standard in terms of criticism of China versus Israel, uh, where, you know, obviously Israel is not doing the things of which it's been accused, and China is not being criticized for doing actual evil that it is doing. Uh, so diversity, equality, and inclusion are not, uh, apparently. And this is just another example of the rampant anti-Semitism in our college campuses and universities. We, we know that uh, Jewish students and <clears throat> are not safe on these campuses. Their uh, studies of Jewish students have found that uh, they don't feel safe and that they don't feel that there's any improvement. Uh, they are very worried about anti-Semitism. Uh, Jewish students and pro-Israel students receive worse grades, and there are a number of staff members who admitted to giving poor grades to uh, pro-Israel students and such. So it's, uh, it's a big problem on our uh, on our campuses these days, and we're going to have to we're going to have to do something about it. Uh, times, you know, something's going to have to change. Something has to give. But unfortunately, right now it is uh, an ongoing issue. So here's another example of uh, rampant anti-Semitism in our colleges and camp uh, college campuses and our universities these days, and uh, no response from the political leadership on the matter. So. With that, I will say uh, I will return to uh, discussing the French elections in the next episode. I just had too much to talk about today uh, with regard to Israel. And I will uh, continue uh, the news and analysis from Israel as always. So I will say goodbye. L'Hitrot.